Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. You know, when I think about what I do, which I do often, I sit there going, what the hell do I do? What do you call this fucking job? Here's what I think it is. What I try to do is I read something. I experience something. I learn something that changes the way that I see the world in fundamental ways. It knocks me off my chair going, what the fuck? Everything is different now. And then I try to tell it to you through comedy. That's it. That's the long and the short of it. That's what Adam Ruins Everything was. That's what this podcast is. That's what my stand-up is. That is what I do. Well, today, I would like to tell you about one of the most mind-blowing things I ever learned. This revelation to me, I still marvel at when I think about. It is so enormous that it changed the way that I think about the place I live in, the continent that I live in. The way I relate to other people, the way I think about my society, it is truly massive. And here it is. If you grew up like I did, I grew up as a white kid on Long Island in the 90s taking history class. What you learned, what I learned about the, quote, prehistory, I'm using scare quotes there, of the Americas, is that before Columbus, there were a couple civilizations in Central and South America. You know, there was uh, maybe you heard about the Aztecs or whatever. But apart from that, it was just Indians hanging out in the woods, not doing much with the space, right? Just a couple people here or there and a lot of trees and empty valleys and stuff that white European settlers could just come in and make use of. That is the version that we were taught about. I learned about the Americas before Columbus as an untrammeled wilderness, an empty place. And that is a grotesquely incorrect Picture. What I finally learned in my early fucking 30s is that that is entirely wrong. New scholarship has demolished this idea of the Americas as a depopulated, empty continent. A recent study that collected decades of work on the topic estimates that there were actually around 60 million people in the Americas at the time of Columbus. 60 million. For reference, the population of Europe at the time was just between 70 and 88 million. So the Americas were basically on par with Europe in terms of population. This was not an empty continent. This landscape was teeming with people. And not only that, the civilizations in the Americas were advanced and dynamic The Incas created a network of roads as many as 37,000 miles long. This was a couple centuries before Eisenhower did it. The Incas were building roads everywhere. Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, had hundreds of thousands of people, making it as large as many of the capitals of Europe. And plus, it has, did I mention this? Pyramids. London ain't got no pyramids. And not only that, the people of the Americas were incredibly diverse. In North America alone, there were upwards of 300 distinct languages spoken. So put it all together, we got people, we got cities, we got roads, we got advanced learning and education. How did the story that we tell each other today end up being so incredibly wrong? Well, here's what happened. After Columbus, successive waves of illness, of disease brought to the Americas by Columbus and explorers like him swept across the countryside. The people that lived here had little to no immunity to these diseases. And as a result, they killed up to 90 percent of the population of the Americas. 
Yeah, 90%. You know, as in almost everyone. This was a complete cataclysm. The death toll is almost unimaginable. To give you some perspective, it was the largest human die-off in history until World War II, centuries later. In fact, there were so many deaths after the European arrival that the temperature of the earth decreased as a result because a huge amount of farmland was retaken by natural vegetation and became a carbon sink. So many people died, it literally altered the temperature of the earth. But here's the wildest part. There was a gap. Those deaths occurred in the gap between when the earliest explorers like Columbus came to the Americas and when the settler colonizers came decades later. So the earliest European visitors reported seeing shores that were teeming with people, land that was full of civilization. But decades later, when a newer generation of colonizers arrived, they found land that had many, many less people in it. The accounts of those colonizers were the ones that were widely disseminated and read when in fact it was European germs that killed upwards of 50 million people right before those colonizers arrived. And this notion was perpetuated due to a self-serving and racist colonial myth that seems to say, hey, there were, there were hardly any Native Americans here. So, uh, you know, they weren't really using the land. Uh, there weren't that many of them anyway. So let's just come in and, and uh, make our own homes, right? There's plenty of room on this continent. <laughs> plenty of empty space for us Europeans to come into and, you know, build our buildings and plant our shit everywhere. It's, it's an empty, untrammeled wilderness. It's, it's ripe for the taking. When, in fact, the people who perpetuated that myth, in many cases, knew quite well that there were people here. It's erasure, pure and simple. Now, this revelation rocked my world. It gave me a stark new way to look at the very ground that I stand on. Like, learning about this is like learning that dinosaurs never actually existed or that the Earth doesn't really revolve around the sun. That's just a myth that Copernicus made up because he was being sponsored by the Round Earth Lobby which is actually what a lot of flat earthers think. So that one's false, okay? But this one is true. It completely recontextualized everything that I thought I knew about the place that I live in. Now, I read about this in an incredible book called 1491. And this book didn't originate this research, but it did the incredibly important job of reviewing it, surveying it, writing it up into a format that a layperson like me could read and understand and underlined the importance and the revelations that this new perspective gives us. That is the work of truly great science journalism. It takes the research and uses it to help us see the world in a new way. Well, I am so proud and excited to say that on the show today, we have the author of 1491. Charles Seaman is one of the foremost science journalists working today. And he's the author not just of 1491, but the follow-up, 1493, and most recently, The Wizard and the Prophet. His work has meant a great deal to me, and I could not be more thrilled to have him on the show. Let's get right to the interview. Please welcome Charles Seaman. Charles, it's so wonderful to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so thrilled to have you. I'm, I've been a fan of your work for a very, very long time. Uh, your book, 1491, which I know is a number of years in the past for you now, but was a, a huge revelation for me in the way that I thought about the world and the continent that I live on. 
I've been trying to figure out where to start <laughs> because your work covers so much ground. <laughs> uh, I, I, you wrote a piece for The Atlantic last June that I thought tied together some threads uh, where you were writing about the pandemic and a line really jumped out at me that I thought might be an interesting starting point, which was you wrote that for Native Americans, the epidemic era actually lasted for centuries. Uh, and I wondered if you could like expand on that thought for a bit for us. Sure. Um, by a bunch of historical circumstances that we can talk about, uh, if you're at all curious, when Europeans arrived in the Americas, you know, after Columbus and so forth, there were very, very few epidemic diseases. There are very few diseases that one person could give another mm -hmm. um, in the hemisphere at that time. And so one way to think about the first 150 or so years of um, American history is to say that all the diseases that had been killing off people in Europe and Asia and Africa for thousands and thousands of years were suddenly dumped on the Americas. You know, they're carried over by the Spanish ships and the English ships. And the result was that somewhere between two thirds and 90% of the original inhabitants of the Americas died. It was the worst demographic catastrophe uh, in the history of the world. Um, and it kept going on. I mean, you know, the Comanches had, you know, done everything. They kicked out the Spaniards. They kicked out the Texans. They kicked out the uh, Americans. Smallpox comes in and basically does them in. And this, uh, and that's in, you know, the 19th century. And up until, you know, the 30s, uh, plagues were killing off Native Americans um, because they did not have these exposure to the diseases for centuries and centuries and centuries the way that Europeans and um, Asians and Africans did. And so in a certain horrible way for Indian country, this is nothing new. Yeah, I mean, th this revelation from from 1491, this is where I first encountered it, that the, the population of North America mm -hmm. was vastly, vastly higher than our popular image of it, than what I was taught in school, than, you know, any sort of television or movie depiction of what North America was like, um, and that disease had wiped out most of the people there before most European settlers even arrived. The earliest explorers brought it. They wiped out. How many hundreds of millions of people? An incredibly large number of people, potentially. An incredibly large number. I mean, it's really hard to know how many, right? Because you're, it's yeah. like looking at a bank account that's been robbed and trying to guess uh, how much money used to be there. You know, so you can't really know. But the typical estimates now are that there are, you know, somewhere around 40 to 60 million people in the Americas at the time that Columbus hit. I should note that these estimates keep rising a little bit. But mm -hmm. one way to think about that is that there are roughly as many people in Western um, in Europe as there was in the Americas, you know, at the time of Columbus. And that picture really dramatically changed over the next couple of centuries. But this this is a truth that uh, I mean, you wrote this book in 2005, right? Or that's when it was published. Um, mm -hmm. And this yeah. is based on research that was going on, I, I assume, for years before that. And, uh, you know, it's only solidified more now. And yet the truth of that is something that, like, we still have trouble internalizing. Like, there, <laughs> like there hasn't been uh, a mass change in consciousness of what North America was like among, you know, those of us who, who now live here. Um, and uh, I don't know, there seems to be a, a problem of even when we revise our notion of the past, like integrating that into our understanding of the present, even as vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic. Yeah, and you also, you see things like, uh, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, um, Native people manage the Western landscape yeah. by burning it, right? You know, there is a huge amounts of a, 
and it's called even they even have a name for it, tech, T-E-K, traditional ecological knowledge. Mm. And there are techniques for burning this, you know, landscape in such a way as to make it productive and live and livable. And uh, the people died from epidemics and then followed by, you know, wars and mistreatment and all the other horrible things that um, then happened. And none of that knowledge was taken up by the U.S. government. Yeah. And so he comprehensively mismanaged the forests of the West for, you know, 100, 150 years. And the results are what we now have in, in, in California. And yeah. so they kind of, if we truly understood that these landscapes had been thoroughly inhabited by people who figured out how to live there, we might not have made these sort of beginner's mistakes. <laughs> it, it's, I thank you. <laughs> I thank you for talking to me about this, even though, again, this is work that you first started diving into, you know, over 15 years ago because, and I read the book years ago, but every time I think about the revelations from this mm -hmm. book, I'm like stunned again, every time they come to me. Uh, do you, do you, do you experience that? Are you in that like state of astonishment about this as you think about it? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really hard to overcome your, you know, what you learned in childhood, right? Yeah. And I learned the same thing probably you did in childhood. I'm, I can even recall my textbook saying that the Eastern forest, you know, was uh, so big and dense that a squirrel could jump from Cape Cod to the Mississippi, you know, just on the branches of the trees. And this was in my textbook. I just thought, whoa, this sort of forest, dark and deep. And, you know, it never occurred to me that, of course, that'd be a horrible place to live. You know, there'd be no sunlight <laughs> there. You couldn't grow corn. You couldn't do anything there. And in fact, people didn't live there like that. There was huge um, patches of, of big cleared land. And this was recorded by the colonists. But when the native people were killed off by disease, and mistreatment and all the other things that we uh, talked about, the forest grew back. And so somebody like Thoreau was looking at uh, basically what was a cemetery, right, where the lands had gone yeah. feral. And he thought it had always been that way. And this is just deeply lodged in, you know, my mind as well. And for obvious reasons, a lot of Native people when, you know, get pissed off about it. Yeah, I mean, God, just that revelation that that so much of what we think of as the white colonial experience, though, and, you know, those writers, Thoreau or earlier uh, settlers who, you know, would write down, ah, look at this primeval forest that nobody lives in. They were experiencing yeah. a relatively new development, a forest that had grown back because right. all of these people had suddenly disappeared and they missed it. They didn't, they showed up just after this happened and they thought that they were seeing something that was ages old. That's incredible. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, sort of the founding myth of, uh, unfortunately, the environmental movement. And you mm. see it in things like the Wilderness Act of 1963, which is dedicated to, um, you know, preserving, what is it, the, la the lands untrammeled by the hands of man, I think is the mm -hmm. language in the, in the preface. And it's, you know, actually taking places that were heavily inhabited, heavily modified, and heavily settled by the or original people. Um, and yeah. kind of, you know, I think inadvertently writing them out of history, erasing them. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, a bad just cause it's not true. And it's also bad because it means that we've comprehensively mismanaged so much of the land as a result of this, uh, myth. It's, there's a geographer named William Denevin and calls it the pristine myth. And I think that's a pretty good word for it. Mm. Pretty good term for it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it it's even beyond those negative consequences. It also means we're not doing the thing that we think we're doing. When you go to, you know, right. one of the great national parks in the United States and you say, ah, we preserved this land. This We said no one's going to build anything here. We're going to keep this the way it's always been. That's neglecting the fact that we, including people like John Muir, like, you know, founders of the American conservation movement, kicked out the native people who were living there and by doing so transformed the land that we're seeing. We're actually seeing a landscape that we created in the last few hundred years. We're not seeing a, you know, preserved right. little corner of this is how it always was. So, and that's particularly true for, even for places like Yosemite, mm-hmm. um, Muir went there and he thought that, and it's beautiful. I mean, it is beautiful, but he didn't understand that the beauty he was seeing was because it was a garden. You know, yeah. it was a tended landscape, uh, uh, you know, a quote, artificial, if you want to use that kind of language. He saw the people living there who had been living there forever and ever and ever. And he thought they were squatters <laughs> and uh, yeah. they were bad. They're, they shouldn't be doing this because they were doing stuff that was, you know, messing around with nature. And in fact, the Park Service made a concerted effort to kick them out. And I don't think um, the last uh, indigenous people were kicked out of Yosemite until the middle of the 20th century. Um, you know, so there's this decades long sort of shoving them out of their, their home process that really gives you a bad taste of them. How now yeah. you go to Yosemite? T- tell me a little bit about how this, you said, uh, what's happening in California now. I assume you mean the, the devastating fires that we had last year and will continue to have, mm-hmm. which are, uh, of course, you know, climate change plays a piece in this, but how does this mistake, uh, that we're talking about here, cause that problem? Okay. Well, if you go to the far northeast corner, you know, you have the Klamath River, which come, um, runs down from southern Oregon and then goes sort of through the mountains and uh, ends up in the in, in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And you have these people who've lived there for a really long time, the Karuk, the Yurok, and, uh, and the Hoopa, and, you know, several, several other, other nations. And if you, I mean, they're still here, right? Um, yeah. Even though California um, probably has the California might have the single worst record of all the 50 states for treating its indigenous population. Um, There's a book that came out a few years ago about California's treatment of its natives uh, by a guy named Madsen. It's called, it's got an unfortunately appropriate title. It's called American Genocide. Mm. Um, So these guys, you know, they, they were given reservations. There was a treaty signed and so forth. And then the state of California didn't want them to have any land. So, uh, they, they, the California was sort of up for grabs in terms of which this is in the 1850s and 1860s, whether it was going to be a slave state or so forth. And to appease California, they hid the treaties. They literally hid the treaties for decades. Mm. Um, and the result is they didn't get any land. Um, uh, and when they tried to manage the land in the way that they had for thousands of years, they were arrested or shot. Mm. Or, mm. you know, jailed or you know, what, what have you. And there's like tons of records, these guys. And what were they trying to do? They were trying to do preventive burning. Mm. They were trying to burn the landscape, um, to prevent the fuel from building up. And there's a whole elaborate techniques that they had developed for preventing themselves from being burned out yeah. and when they were arrested. Um, so, you know, th- this, this didn't happen. And so there's a place in California called Happy Camp, which is a, you know, largely indigenous um, settlement. They got burned out this year, even though the people in it, the Uruk and Karukans and so forth, had been begging the Forest Service for decades, to, <laughs> literally decades, to let them burn the land preventively. And, uh, you know, it was awful. 
And this yeah. has happened again and again and again in California. California is always one of the places where America's problems seem to almost coalesce and become malignant in a way and like collect like California as the uh, as the <laughs> depository of all these of all these things. Um, but, yeah, my understanding is that without that controlled burning, that allows undergrowth to to rise up and which is much more flammable. And that leads to bigger fires. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's a pretty simple, um, process. And, uh, there were, in fact, uh, forest service guys, uh, you know, back at the beginning of the 20th century, um, in the 19 teens and twenties who saw this and they said, no, we should not have this, uh, policy of, you know, avoiding putting out all um, forest fires. We should allow for burning. And there's a big fight within the forest service. It was, mm. um, against these guys and they, they were called, um, Paiute burnings, because um, mm. Paiute apparently meant primitive or bad or something. You know, mm. it was, it was, this was like a slam, and uh, you know they lost, and so the instead the Forest Service um, and inaugurated what's been called the 10 a.m. policy, which is that every fire started in the um, forest on day one should be out by 10 a.m. Um, on the next day. And uh, I think there's general recognition that this has been totally disastrous. Because this results in if you if you squelch every fire, then there's no room for little fires to sort of less damagingly burn away what like flammable material. And then when a fire does come, it's enormous. It's enormous. And so what indigenous fires typically are are in the spring when it's wet and the temperatures are cool. Um, then there's often, you know, rainfall in, in California, you know, and it gets wetter at the end of the day. So you light an area in the afternoon, the cool weather keeps the smoke down. There's not nearly as much smoke and then it goes out. And then they also have tricks like fire burns better uphill than downhill. So you start the fire on the top of the hill and let it burn mm. down because it burns more slowly. There's all these tricks they know, this tech. Um, I, I, I shouldn't call them tricks because it's actually, you know, experience and knowledge yeah. um, technology. of the sort when you have a master craftsman, you know, you respect it. So I shouldn't technology It's tech. Yeah, it's tech. Um, they know all this, this, this stuff. And now yeah. typically what you have when you have wildfires is they burn when it's hottest and driest, yeah. not when it's wettest. Mm. Um, and uh, there's no way to put them out. And then they burn up high, right? They burn up and they, they call crown fires and the tree tops of the trees keep going instead of just being down at the leaf litter. And one of, not only is that, much more destructive, but it also kills a bunch of trees. And those dead trees then become the fuel for the next fire. So <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how like <laughs> looking at the history of North America at the history that you're talking about makes me see one of like the biggest disasters that I've been living through. Uh, you know, I mean, there were days where I couldn't leave my home last year because of the wildfires that are happening in California. And we here in Los Angeles got far from the worst of it. Um, and looking through the lens of history makes this event look completely different to me. Um, it, I'm curious, just coming back to the pandemic, uh, to that opening question, do you feel you see the pandemic any differently because of your study of the, the epidemics that uh, were so devastating to indigenous people in North America? Well, if you think about it, um, one of the reasons that those epidemics were so devastating is that people who had grown up without any idea of communicable diseases um, were experiencing them. And mm. there's a, 
a memoir by a, um, a Paiute woman. And there's a sentence in there that really, you know, sort of caught me. She said, we had no idea a person could pass a disease to another person any more than they could pass a wound to another person. You know, mm. if I cut my arm, I can't give you that cut. Right. Yeah. And so it's an ailment. And so they're, they're, they're so the whole idea of communicability is not there because they didn't, there weren't any communicable, um, diseases. And so you have, you know, all your natural human reactions are working against you. You know, if, if smallpox comes into the village, somebody gets terribly sick. What do you do? The family gathers around that person and comforts them. And what do they do? They get the disease. They give it to their friends. Everybody panics because this horrible thing is happening. What do they do? They flee to the next village. What are they carrying? The disease. Yeah. And so the logic of quarantine isn't there. Um, and you're seeing that because now we have so little experience with that. You're seeing really crazy things in our own response to the pandemic that result that are basically from a lack of real understanding of how diseases spread. And so, mm. you know, all the people who don't put face masks on, all the people who want to get together at family gatherings for the holidays, and, you know, then these become super spreader events or weddings or what, what ha have you, all of these human impulses are working against us. And it's uh, in a small way replicating exactly what happened, um, I think, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago when Europeans uh, first arrived, except now we're doing it to ourselves and we haven't learned a thing from uh, yeah. in the past. I mean, it does, it does strike me that, uh, I'm not going to say it's the first time it's happened. I'm sure it's happened many other times, but the degree to which, uh, you know, uh, white Europeans, uh, the descendants of white Europeans in North America are, uh, you know, now being attacked by a pandemic rather than being the people who brought it somewhere else, um, is, uh, there's an irony to it. Yeah, there's an irony to it, but the irony would be a little bit better if um, Native people weren't being hit so badly uh, mm. by it, like the Navajo and uh, so forth. They've had terrible yeah. in, in the Lakota and uh, yeah. had terrible suffering from it. But that's not because so much of, um, you know, lack of knowledge. It's because um, they, you know, the indigenous, the healthcare available to indigenous people is just terrible. And, uh, yeah. you know, as you know, and so many people there don't have, you know, Good electricity and running water, um, and heat. And so they're, uh, so it's, you know, it's tremendously exacerbated by, um, poverty and which is, of course, comes from this legacy of discrimination, yeah. um, which has gone on for, gone on for so long. So that there is this, you're, you're absolutely right, but there's this really unpleasant, um, yeah. side effect. It's, it's actually very, there's a small bit of good news on this. Uh, the Navajo, you know, it's been recognized and the Navajo now, I think, um, are in terms of just a, a group of people. Um, they have more than half their populace now vaccinated. I think they're ahead of everybody else wow. in the nation. Uh, it really mm -hmm. can't be understated, though, how much pandemics like this like change the course of history. You wrote, again in this Atlantic piece, uh, the historians have seldom noted the connection between measles and the presidency of Barack Obama, uh, which I, I really love that line. Can you Can you share that story? Well, it is an amazing story. Basically, um, Hawaiian Islands, you know, if you think about it, they're a place, with, again, with very, very few um, epidemic diseases. They just hadn't uh, come there. And uh, uh, the result was that when Europeans came over there, you know, in their ships, they brought these diseases. This is, again, before the germ theory of disease. It was, you know, it, they knew about disease, but they didn't know what it was. Um 
you know, how to, how, how really to stop it. And, uh, the, the problem with the islands, uh, that made it even worse is that there's nowhere to go, right? You can't flee. You can't, you know, go to the next state. Um, and, uh, so the islands were, uh, um, beset by this. They're also very worried about the United States, um, taking them over, the native Hawaiians. And so the king, um, and queen of Hawaii made this plan to um, forestall this by formally allying with um, Britain. Uh, mm. And by doing this, they were going to gain the protection of Britain. Um, and so they, they went on this long voyage over to, from Hawaii over to, uh, Europe in the, um, 1870s. And, um, you know, we're about to sign this alliance when, you know, in this horrible, um, ironic fashion, they went to Europe and they got sick. They got measles and they died. Um, that blew up that plan. The United States did take over, um, Hawaii exactly as they had, had feared. And, uh, lo, lo and behold, there's Barack Obama coming from Hawaii <laughs> to, um, end up as president as the United States. <laughs> I, I mean, it's such an incredibly sad story with uh, that. That's, that's, I suppose, a light at the end of the tunnel if you want to find a positive takeaway at the end of, a story of incredible destruction and, and death of, uh, uh, you know, of a very of, of an entire culture. Uh, I mean, I'm not that Hawaiian culture is, yeah. is gone, but um, the the amount of life lost was massive. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, if you're looking at um, indigenous groups today, you can think of them as uh, surviving a level of loss that, you know, is, is just inconceivable to those of us who aren't in the, those groups. I mean, these are people yeah. who within, you know, historical memory lost 30, 40, 50% uh, of, of their people. And then we're terribly treated on top of that. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, you, you, they find you and you're, you know, dazed and bleeding after being beaten up. And somebody says, Oh, let's rob them. <laughs> <laughs> let's rob this poor guy. <laughs> uh, you have an incredibly deep, uh, knowledge of, you know, native history, uh, uh, in North America. And I think uh, beyond that around the world, um, how did you come to study that topic? And I'm also curious about how you feel as a white man, you know, studying this, studying this topic. Um, like, is there, is there ever a conflict for you or is there a perspective that you feel that you bring to it? Um, well, first I, I got interested because, um, when I was a very little, I moved from Michigan to, um, area around Seattle. And, um, it didn't take much to notice that we were living right next to, um, you know, a bunch of, in, um, Indian reservations. There's 28, uh, I think reservations in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. And, um, some of these folks, you know, were, they were around and, uh, I come from this really sort of uber waspy family. I mean, like I have ancestors on both sides of my family. They were actually literally on the Mayflower. Wow. <laughs> this is sort of what my parents were fleeing, actually, <laughs> to come to Seattle, where, where that wouldn't matter. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I was sort of, even as a kid, I was sort of used to this idea. I come from an old family, you know what I mean? And yeah. I looked at these guys. I thought, like, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a newcomer. And then I don't know if you've ever seen um, the art of the Pacific Northwest, but yeah. it's just amazing. Incredible. It's beautiful. And uh, even as a kid, I mean, I'm, I'm 
I, I, I could tell this was really great stuff and it was really different. And it, you know, it was organized, I would now say on aesthetic principles that were completely different from, you know, European aesthetic yeah. principles. And so, uh, then, but I didn't really do much of that. I just knew that they were interesting and important people, um, until, uh, you know, as a young adult and a science writer, I went to, uh, Yucatan and I saw the Maya ruins and, I'd been to Greece and Rome and I thought, oh, wait a minute, these are, these ruins are bigger. Yeah. And to my, you know, inexpert eye, they look just as impressive. And I thought like, wait a minute, in my high school, we talked about Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome, which I think we should. Uh, but I don't know if the word Maya was even mentioned. And this is my own hemisphere. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, started getting curious and, uh, that, you know, you know, the way is it, it, if you're at all freelancer, one thing leads to the, to the next. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I did want to answer your second question. I did think like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not like a white guy. I'm like the pastiest white guy you ever saw. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> super waspy. And, and so, um, so I, I, I want, and, you know, in my inexpert way, I wondered, well, should I do this? And, um, I talked to a guy early on named Russell Thornton, who's uh, actually at UCLA, uh, Cherokee guy, really, really excellent guy. And so I, I unburdened myself, <laughs> you know, he hit it <laughs> off and I had burdened. And he said, well, I'll give you some advice. He said, what? He said, a whole lot of white people, uh, forget that the people that they're writing about are human beings. Yeah. Um, so if you just keep that in mind, you'll probably be okay. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> it's really true. I don't want to hold up myself up as any kind of example or because I'm certainly not, but I can say that um as I read stuff, quite often it occurs to me that the writer, you know, who looks like me, um hasn't realized that native people are in the room. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You're right. And so um I was just talking to a guy about there's a I hate to, you know, pick out a guy, you know, as a stick to beat with, but I'm going to do it anyway, I guess. There's a guy named Gwen, uh, who wrote, uh, I, Pulitzer nominated, Pulitzer winning, I forget, history of the Comanche, uh, and of Connor Parker, this amazing guy who was, uh, you know, one of their major figures, um, called Empire of the Summer Moon. Um, I think Brad Pitt or somebody's making a movie mm. of it. And if you just read it, it's talking about how, um, they had, they, you know, right in the beginning, talks about how the Comanche had held back civilization. And, uh, these people were the last untamed, literally using that word, mm. um, Indians in there. And I'm thinking, Comanche are actually reading this. And they're <laughs> right. thinking, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're civilization. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And what, what the heck? I'm tamed. You know, I'm now tamed. Uh, you know, who's going to like that? And you can say, what you're talking about, <laughs> you know, remember that they're in the row. Yeah. And, uh, you know, luckily, uh, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are native people who absolutely hate what I've um, written and hate everything I stand for, but they've been kind enough not to tell me. <laughs> I mean, how do you think of yourself when you're diving into these topics? Because sometimes I think of, you know, again, as a, as another white person, I think like, well, I, I'm the ignorant person, you know, like I, I grew up, uh, you know, as a white kid on Long Island hearing the same stories as everybody else. And I hope that by, you know, eng- engaging on a voyage of discovery and publicly modeling it and being astonished by what I find, mm-hmm. I can help draw other people from ignorance to knowledge because there's there's other ignorant people like me who kind of need to hear it, you know, and that's sometimes what I think my my role is. 
Um, you know, maybe there's white people out there who are more likely to listen to another dumb white guy when he's like, oh, shit, I just learned this stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, that that's what yeah. I that's what I hope I can have the have the role of um, because I'm I'm fascinated by these topics as well. Um, but I mean, you're doing on the ground research. You're you know, you're talking to uh, native experts and, and doing these sorts of things. And, and uh, I don't know. Is there any. Is there anything that you do in particular uh, to to make your role fit for you and and do it in a way that, you know, is, as you say, respectful? I, I guess I try to indicate that I'm really interested in hearing what they have to say. Yeah. And uh, that uh, um, it may, you know, affect what I do and 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 and, and how I write. And uh, the other thing I think um this is going to sound hopelessly hokey, but it's like one of those things where it's, you actually believe the hopelessly hokey thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> is this that I think that, you know, a, a really good book is uh, on some level an act of generosity, you know, yeah. uh, that you're, you're, you're trying to approach it in a, in a generous fashion. Yeah. Um, you know, years ago, I, I saw Penn and Teller, the magicians, and they mm. said, don't think of us as these big experts. Think of us as this, these, uh, you know, ordinary guys who've learned a couple of cool things and want to show them to you because they're so cool. Um, <laughs> and that's how I sort of think, <laughs> you know, I got a chance to meet these amazing people. Yeah. Um, and they have told me really, really cool things. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, a native person who is 75, say, has had extraordinary things happen in his yeah. or her life. Um, you know, there's an incredible store of hundreds of thousands of p- people out there with just amazing stories. It's a privilege to, you know, when they, you know, from time to time, they'll let me listen to them. So I, I just feel really grateful about the whole business and I'm very happy to try to share it. <laughs> it's hokey. I know it's not at all. It's not at all. I think that's. Uh, a very fundamental human trait to, you know, that that's a lot of what I do as an entertainer is I learned something and I thought that's amazing. I want to tell other people. And that's such an honest emotion to have that other people respond to it when you, when that is the basis of your work. Um, that's really cool that you feel similarly. Yeah. And, you know, I've been uh, just for this project we're doing reading about Chaco Canyon now, which is this, you know, sort of enormous site that's in the southwest, not all that far from from you guys in New Mexico. And, uh, you know, the details that the archaeologists, you know, and especially now in the last few years when they've been much more interested in working with Native people about recovering what life was like uh for the those people you can just mm-hmm. get this little picture. And I was thinking, oh, and I just had the gasp, you know, uh Literally yesterday, as I was writing this, sort of thinking, this is going to be so much fun for people to read because uh-huh. I had so much fun <laughs> learning it. <laughs> and uh, before we go to break, uh, this this new book that you're working on, you were telling me before we started rolling that uh, it's a bit of a sequel to, to 1491 about the American West. It just tells us, uh, give us a little, yes, a little taste of it. So this is the sort of official uh, version. The basic idea is that, uh, you know, uh, my kids, um, a little while ago, I'm from the West and started mentioning, Oh, wouldn't it be fun for us to go back there? You know, and I was sort of imagining what would it be like this place that they're going to be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, if they were, if they were to do that. And, you know, you can't predict the future, but there's some things that would be really strange if they didn't happen. Right. So you, know, you can't know who's going to be president, but you can know that barring something really weird, 
the West is going to be hotter and drier than it is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, every <laughs> study yes. says hotter and drier, right? Even the no Colorado River Zone going, it's like 11th bazillionth, yeah, 11th drought in the last however many years or whatever the number is, you know, California looks like it's going to have another drought. Oh, you know, you hear this all the time, right? Yeah. Hotter and drier. The other things you can say about it, um, you know, whatever happens, it's going to be a center of energy, you know, the center mm-hmm. of the energy industry. Um, you can also say, it's going to be uh, a mixed up multicultural place. It's going to have, you know, 40% of its people are Hispanic origin or whatever the number is. Um, you know, nine, nine, 10% indigenous, you know, uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of, um, Asians on the, all, all along the Pacific Rim. I don't know what the numbers are, but the point is it's a, you know, jumbled up, mixed up multicultural um, place. Um, and the final thing is that, uh, since, you know, I was a kid, one of the clearest things that's been happening is that the, uh, indigenous groups of the West, there's, I think, 294 federally recognized tribes have, um, I think that's the number, have, um, been recuperating their sovereignty. Mm. You know, they have, they're going to be more and more like, you know, independent nations. And so, so think about this future 30 years from now with this hotter, drier, um, you know, super complicated uh, mosaic of um, ethnic groups. That looks a lot more like the West of 800 or 1200 than it does the West of 1900. Yeah. And uh, so in some ways, the distant past has more relevance than now than in the future. And I thought, you know, what if I wrote a history of that West, the West that's coming? And uh, that's the idea. That's amazing. I I. I'm looking forward to that so much. Uh, I want to talk about some of your other work, but we got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Charles C. Mann. I'm a real, you know, super print guy, so I don't actually listen to that many podcasts, but I have listened to you. Uh, and, uh, I thought, I thought this guy sounds sort of like me. <laughs> <laughs> only I hope, I hope I, 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 only I don't think I sound as good, but I mean, <laughs> basically in a sense that, uh, you know, uh, I think of myself as sort of like, you know, like my Labrador, mindless enthusiasm. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that's my, that's my stock and trade. I learn things that go, well, that's really cool. Incredible. I feel that way when I read your work. I'm like, oh, I feel like our, yeah. I feel like our brains work a little bit similarly in terms of what I'm, what I'm interested in and the enthusiasm that I have yeah. for these topics. You're also, I, I want to say, one of my favorite Twitter follows because, uh, you know, you, my, my guess is from reading you is that you, just sort of like are you know you spend a lot of time reading research new studies that come out and you just sort of tweet when something mm-hmm. strikes you as really fascinating and so as opposed to people who tweet every angry thought that they have uh every tweet of yours is like oh here's something really interesting here's a really fascinating uh new idea that just came out um yeah how do you go about that that that's what yeah that's what i i mean i I actually don't think I have all that much to contribute, um, hmm. in the discussion of whether Donald Trump is awful or not, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, you know, all these other subjects. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, pile, I just don't think I have that much to say. Um, but, you know, I can, I can, I said, I, I can read scientific, um, papers and, you know, every now and, you know, they, they, the great thing about it is scientists are not allowed to write well. I mean, mm-hmm. they're actually punished if they are. So they, so they'll take something and there's they're, like, they're out to bore you, but then you tunnel in, you think like, holy crap, this is really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, in all sorts of different ways. 
And uh, so then I thought this this is this this is fun to share because I don't actually think my like personal opinions about most stuff is that interesting. <laughs> Well, well, you're like, uh, as we all are, you're a lens, right, through which you're you're viewing yeah. this work. You have your interest and your understanding, and then, you know, you're able to take it and hold it up for us and say, oh, I found this interesting, and uh, in a way that is a yeah. little bit more intelligible. I'm not someone who can uh, read a, you know, habitually, uh, every day, read dense uh, academic prose. I can when I'm motivated by a research project, but it's not my day job, you know? And so you hold it up for me yeah. and I see it and I go, oh, wow, okay, this is interesting. Charles pointed out what is cool about this. And then maybe I take that and I do that yeah. for somebody else because you're one of the people that I read. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, I read this so you don't have to. I read a lot of really bad prose. <laughs> <laughs> I often think of what I do as, you know, in entertainment and television as taking, you know, work from very good writers like yourself. But, you know, a lot of the audience uh, mm. is not able to spend, uh, you know, their evenings reading because they have kids. They're very busy. They only have 22 minutes at the end of a night to watch something. And so I take it and I I make that that final translation of, mm. uh, you know, I read this so you don't have to and turn yeah. it into television. Um, you're uh, I. As I look at all your work, I think there's like a connecting thread of our relationship with the natural world as humanity. I mean, even as you're writing about indigenous uh, cultures and societies, there's that connection with, you know, uh, how, how, you know, different cultures have managed forests and et cetera. Um, I know there's that that's very much the theme of your book, The Wizard and the Prophet. Do you feel that that theme running through? Sure. Uh, very much. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the uh, 70s and uh, the environmental movement was on board. And um, I also grew up in a really beautiful place, you know, mm -hmm. relatively rural um, part, you know, the exurbs of um, Seattle. And uh, so it's it's been an overwhelming con concern of mine. And I also think, you know, in a way that this particular time that we're living in, it's the biggest issue we have, um, which is, are we going to figure out a way to live with our in environment that doesn't bite us in the ass and, yeah. uh, you know, gives us a, 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 a good place for our kids and grandchildren to live. And we're going to be making these decisions, um, in the yeah. next 20, 30, 40 years about what kind of place we're going to be in. And they're going to resonate for centuries upon centuries. Yeah. And so as a journalist, that's the biggest story there is, I think. And so it's, yeah. uh, you know, something I, I keep thinking about a lot. Uh, I recently had Elizabeth Colbert on to discuss her new book, uh, Under uh -huh. a White Sky, uh, which I have not yet had the chance to read. But, uh, you know, I'm familiar with her work and um, uh, had a really wonderful conversation with her. She has a really... I want to call it sort of devastatingly clear-eyed view of how we have altered the planet and our prospects for preserving it or, or reversing any of those alterations. Uh, I'm curious about what your overall view is about, you know, climate change or, you know, the, the project of, of changing the planet overall. Are you, you feel optimistic or pessimistic or do you, uh, where do you put yourself? Well, I guess here, here let me ask Please. you a question. Here, I'll tell you what it seems to me to be a really plausible scenario for 30 or 40 years from now. Um, uh, we, we've, we blow past 
two degrees and we're at like yeah. 2.5 degrees. Okay. So there's a lot of bad stuff happens from that. But, um, right now there's 1.3 billion people without electricity mm-hmm. and like 2 billion maybe without potable water. Those numbers mm-hmm. are going down and it's quite possible that that same future will have, um, you know, hardly anybody without electricity, hardly anybody mm. without, um, running, running water. Um, is that a bad world or a good world? Oof. I mean, I guess I want to know more, uh, about the, about the prospects of, I want to know more about what that world looks like, right? Because, uh, how many people are yeah. being forced to, you know, move from where they live? Is Arizona still habitable? Yeah. The answer is yes, because we know that, um, you know, in a severe drought, um, that lasted for a long, long time in the 12th century. And then there is one in the ninth century. And, you know, there's been these mega droughts that have lasted for decades upon decades in Arizona. And, um, Chaco Canyon was built in the middle. Mm-hmm. Of um, these fantastic irrigation systems in Southern Arizona of the Hohokam, uh, where they were based on this sort of radically different idea about how we should deal with water. Um, you know, were all built during these times when it was extremely hot and dry. Yeah. So the answer is yes, it could be. Is it going to be like it is now? No, (laughs) you know, but is it, you know, have people figured out how to tolerate and live decent lives? And yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's again a question. Uh, obviously if a single family is forced to move and become exiled because of, um, you know, climate change, that's a terrible tragedy yeah. that will shake that family forever. But, you know, suppose on a planetary level, when you have, you know, eight or nine billion people, a hundred million people over a space of 20 years are, for, are, are forced to move. Yeah. And, but 1.3 billion people gain electricity at that time. Mm. I mean, how do you balance all, all, all <laughs> that? I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but just, that seems to me a more accurate answer is that really bad stuff and really good stuff will happen. And cause that's the way it's always been in human history. Yeah. Yeah. Making that calculation is you have to do sort of Peter Singer levels of ethical calculus to, <laughs> to try to do it. And, right. and, and even if you did, how would you know if you got the right answer? But you're right. I mean, we have to judge those things it, to answer your question. I don't know how I feel about that future because, OK, 2.5. Well, uh, let's say that that means that the coral reefs are lost. Let's just uh, as a, you, you know, and it, and they wouldn't have been if we had hit some arbitrary other number. Mm-hmm. I think, well, that's bad because I love coral reefs and I do think we have a duty to protect the natural world. And I think it's I do think it's bad for you know, unique species biodiversity to be wiped out. But on the other hand, we have a moral obligation to each other and to the rest of humanity and to prevent human suffering and death. Um, And it's a difficult question to answer. I don't think we should view it as a trade-off that we have to have one to have the other, that we have to kill the coral reefs in order for those people to get electricity. I think that's a false, a false choice that is often pushed on us by those who don't want us to, uh, preserve the environment and just want us to keep burning oil because, hey, that makes we can buy yeah. better, you know, we can buy more stuff that way. But yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, your I think your moral duty is to do as much as you can to protect the the coral reefs. I'm just saying, if that was an outcome, yes, you know, how would you f- f- feel about it? And it's a very complicated situation. If you go, um, as I did for the research in the Wizard of Prophet to, you know, tribal areas in Northeast India, um, people are really, really poor there. And to see what even a small amount of electricity can mean yeah. for, um, people 
in, in that situation is really profoundly, um, you know, moving to see families, you know, have these little solar panels and then they get lights and suddenly, you know, they can, the kids can do their homework at night. The yeah. uh, people can, um, their family I was visiting was making these things, um, these sort of home rolled, um, cigarette like things, bindis, um, mm. you know, that has a little bit of extra money that makes a huge amount of difference when you don't have very much money. You know, they could, there's all kinds of things that were happening with just a little bit of um electricity and uh, you think like yikes you know how do you weigh what that means to those families yeah know, versus the other things that are that are in question i just don't know so the the wizard and the prophet uh, i i've not been so lucky as to read this book yet um but uh, it's it's been on my been on my list for a little while i apologize i've read two of your books charles don't be mad at me that i haven't read every single one um, but, but I read enough, I read enough when the book came out about it, uh, to know that it's about this, what, this conflict between who you call the wizards and the prophets, the folks who want us to cut back and the folks who say, no, we can, we can build better. We can, we can in, invent new things that will improve life. Right. And and I, I detected that distinction in your question to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's about the, the, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a hybrid, um, book, which either means it's a brilliant mashup or a complete mess. Um, <laughs> so, and it's a, a mixture of a dual biography of these two guys who I think are really important, um, and hardly anybody has heard of. Uh, and one of them, the slightly better known one is a guy named Norman Borlaug. And, um, he's the main figure in what's been called the green revolution, which is the mix of, um, hybrid crops, um, irrigation and, um, you know, high intensity fertilizer that, um, came in in the 1960s and 1970s and doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled grain yields, um, throughout much of the world. And, um, is the reason is, is a big part of the reason that, um, People like Paul Ehrlich, when they wrote the population bomb, these sort of classics in the you know 1960s, thought that there was going to be massive famines, and if, and effectively those famines didn't happen. Mm. And so they see numbers around like Borlaug saved a billion lives and so forth. It's always more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. And he's a really remarkable um, figure. Um, and the second guy who's truly obscure, in fact, I occasionally meet people who know who he is, and I'm completely shocked, uh, is a guy <laughs> named William Vogt, V-O-G-T. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I see ringing no bells and you're like the 99% <laughs> yeah, of people in the world or 99.9% of the world. Right. So this is like a really, really, uh, you know, smooth move for me commercially, which is writing a book, a biography about two people nobody's ever heard of. Um, both of whom are, are dead even. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is the guy who put together the ideas behind the modern environmental movement. And that is, um, the fundamental idea is called caring capacity, which is that there's a certain finite amount of use and consumption that can come, that, that people can do on Earth. And if we do more, we surpass the limits set by natural systems and catastrophe is the result. Mm. And uh, so we have to, you know, cut back and put on our cardigan sweaters and, you know, turn down the thermostat and all those kinds of um, things that um, you've heard. And um, And if you think about it, the two ideas, Borlaug, which is that we can, you know, you put on our science hats and, you know, produce our way mm-hmm. out of our dilemmas. We can make more. We can make more better. 
and Vote's idea, which is no, that's crazy. We have to, you know, cut back. They're kind of the opposite from each other. And Borlaug and Vote hated each other. Um, they only met once and, uh, they immediately d- didn't get along and Vote tried to get Borlaug shut down in this sort of half-assed way. Uh, and, uh, that's pretty much where the dialogue has been ever since the day in 1948 when they, in 1946 when they met. <laughs> you can think of it as two ends of a mm-hmm. spectrum or a continuum or something like that. And of course, nobody is perfectly one or per- perfectly the other, but it's amazing how often they line up. And so you, you know, if there's a certain type of person who's against nuclear power, who's against GMOs, who's, uh, you know, in favor of large, um, swaths of untrammeled wilderness. Um, and then there's uh, these other people who want everybody to pack into cities and, you know, these high tech, uh, things, lots and lots of portable, you know, nukes powering everything <laughs> and sending us to Mars. Um, <laughs> and they both think of themselves as environmentalists, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, though, here's the thing. I feel like hearing you talk about it, that maybe those two strains are coalescing for me a little bit. I had uh, a while back, we had a man named Saul Griffith on the show, who's, uh, a, you know, an engineer who, you know, talks about how uh, we can uh, not solve the climate crisis, but uh, make our biggest strides in addressing the climate crisis. If we massively, you know, electrify our grid, convert to sustainable energy sources, you know, drive down the cost of solar, all those sorts of things. And that produces a world that is fundamentally uh, better, where energy is cheaper, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I see that same, now that's, you could say maybe a technocratic pro-capitalist, you know, he's a startup founder, all those sorts of things. And, and, you know, that's that kind of version, but that's not that different from the green new deal approach, um, which is, you know, similarly from, from the most strident environmentalists are now saying, no, we can actually create jobs, have a better economy. If we take climate change really, really seriously, seems like they're sort of coming together in that approach to me. A little little bit. I mean, I think both sides would agree that, you know, one big part of the answer to climate change is electrifying everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and then generating that energy um, in a carbon free way. So far, everybody's on board with this. But there's a whole other argument is one side says, well, that simply can't happen from sustainable from from you know solar and uh and and wind um it has to happen with nuclear and probably it's going to need fossil fuels and we're going to have to have something called carbon capture and storage to mm-hmm. um, these big plants to capture the, yeah. the co2 and inject it into the ground and so there's this big central and all that involves big centralized facilities you know feeding it out to um, uh, to ev- everybody, um, which is sort of the model we now have because there's been yeah. these economies of scale and, and uh, so forth. The other side says, no, uh, that's anti-democratic. These institutions don't care about you. Uh, what we need to have is these networked, um, neighborhood level installations of, um, solar and wind. Everybody's, you know, me and you sw- swapping our power, um, back and forth, um, all under our, our, our control. We're all living much closer to the land. Do, do you see the difference between, and yes. I say, no, that will never work. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, so there's a big fight in there, even though you're absolutely right. They both say electrify everything and do it in a carbon free way. Yeah. Now, is there an, is it impossible for people to find a common ground? No, it's not like a law of physics or anything. I'm just saying that if you look at the history of um, the last 60, 70 years, this fight in different ways has been going on um, ever since 
or log in and vote. You see it in the food um, system. There's a guy I know, you know, terrific writer, Mark Bittman. He's just written yeah. a book, which is um, about how, in his view, um, you know, animal, um, vegetable junk. Um, and he's terrific. And it's about, in his view, how giant agriculture has ruined the food system. And but the opponents will say, well, well, that's just crazy, because what that is, is highly productive and it means we can use less land for yeah. uh, agriculture and we should be doubling down on this and, you know, using uh, genetically modified things. So that we'll have like, you know, the ultimate goal is to have like a single square mile of, <laughs> you know, hyper productive um, corn feed everybody, everything in the rest <laughs> of the country be, you know, um, wilderness <laughs> and. That, you know, so there's another area which that fight is going on or in California where you have water, where you have, you know, this tremendous fight between people who want to say, no, we shouldn't be having golf courses and lawns. We need to have zero escaping and yeah. you know, live in a desert environment. And other people say, no, let's build all these um, giant desalination plants and power them by nukes. And, you know, California has 25 <laughs> The plans for 25 gigantic count of plans, plus this huge thing where they're going to take the Sac I think it's the Sacramento River and uh, funnel it um, down south in another uh, giant canal project. Wow. Um, you guys, I think it's the last like non-channeled river in California. There's some, there's some huge project they want to um, build in the inner part of the, the, the state. So wow. you're, that's another part of that kind of fight. Um, so it's going on, you know, under your feet. <laughs> yeah. I guess literally. Um, and there you are in Los Angeles. It's your water that they're fighting, but you should really pay attention to this. Yeah. I don't know about this one. Um, but is there, okay. I, I'm not going to ask you to, to choose a side because I feel like that would be inimical to your project. And I feel like I know what your, what your answer would be to that. But to me, is there, my question is, is, is there a synthesis of, of those approaches? Because when I look at it, I say, well, you know, the cutback mentality, uh, I spoke about in the intro to our, our episode with Saul Griffith that uh, it's sort of fundamentally self-defeating. People won't do it. You can't tell people just to live worse lives in, you know, with colder thermostats. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and it mathematically won't solve the climate crisis, even if we did that. Uh, and then on the other hand, the idea that, oh, we can continue growing at exactly the same rate, that we have to change nothing. You know, we can continue. Exxon can keep having massive profits. You know, the, the economy can keep growing by this amount every single year and we can solve climate change at the same time. Tends to people who are wedded to that idea tend to propose solutions like going to Mars or carbon capture, which are unproven, don't, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too in a way that when you look at it, it doesn't actually pencil out. The, the research isn't there. And really, they're just asking permission to keep doing what they're doing and fuck future generations. And so I look at it, I'm like, well, at the end of the day, it seems like we need to synthesize these two views <laughs> and and find some sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say middle ground, but what is your what is your view on that? Well, I mean, again, this is not laws of physics, yeah. right? Um, so obviously you can synthesize them. The question is whether people will. And so, you know, here I'm now, what I th was telling you before, per I think pretty much throughout this, you know, conversation was in the realm of mm -hmm. fact, right? You know, I was trying to tell you facts that, that yes. happened. So now you're asking me, could there be a synthesis? And we're entering like a, a different True. realm. And I'm just some guy, I'm just some guy, you know, at the coffee right, shop, right? right, right. <laughs> that you, that you were unlucky enough to sit next to. So, and we somehow got into this conversation. Yeah. And because you were so desperate for conversation after COVID <laughs> that you would talk to anybody, uh, you're, you're, you're willing to hear me yes. out here, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You understand yes. what I say? This is a, so like with John Cabot. So think, so I guess I think about it often in this, um, 
I, I talked to a demographer, a really smart guy once named Nathan Kivitz, and uh, he told me that when he came to scientific disputes like this, he thought, what would happen if you granted each side their essential premise? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what if you did? So um, one side's premise for, like, you know, nuclear power is that nuclear power is safe. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's not going to kill yeah. anybody. Um, and the, the, uh, other side's, um, premise is that it leads, you know, quite naturally to giant, um, corporations, uh, and utilities that are completely unresponsive to democratic, um, pressure and, um, uh, end up not giving a rat's ass mm-hmm. about the, um, the lives of the poor workers who have to get all the uranium mm-hmm. and, uh, and this all sort of stuff. So what if you said both of those are true? Mm-hmm. That it's safe, but it has this. So to me, you know, again, I'm just the guy in the coffee shop here. Um, I think, well, what if we had like you thought of nuclear power as a bridge fuel? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we built small, easily decommissioned neighborhoods, so to speak, nukes? And they, they exist. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, there, if, if in New York, they have them right in Columbia University and in Chicago, I, I think still has its own uh, reactor, the one that Fermi built, yeah. you know, back in the uh, in the 40s. And there's all these small scale things. Now, uh, and those are like under democratic control. I mean, they're, they're right in the middle of big cities and they have not killed anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at this or, and the same thing is essentially true with all those, um, uh, nukes that power nuclear submarines. Yeah. You know, they're, they're fine. And so what if we did things like that on a scale and that gave us a little breathing room while we um, figured out, uh, renewable energy, which is still, you know, in, in, uh, for uh, not renewable energy, I, I mean to say solar yeah. and wind, which is still in its infancy. Yeah. You know, what if we had nukes and said, we're going to build a bunch of these and they're going to last 30 years or 40 years or whatever yeah. this is. Um, I, the, the great merit of this idea is that whenever I have brought it up, everybody hates it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes nobody happy. <laughs> but that's what they it say. Nobody, that's what they say about a good compromise. Want, is a good compromise is one where no one's happy. It, right, and it's. But I, I, I do think it um, that kind of thing. Here's another example for agriculture. You know, um, agriculture is a big climate issue. It's, there's a whole host of issues around agriculture. Mark Bittman is completely right about everything. I, I don't mean his book is very good. I don't yeah. mean to I can't wait to in read any it. way diss him. Um, yeah. Um, it, 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 you know, and you think like a whole bunch of people are very opposed to genetically modified organisms, you know, due to GM plants. So what if we, again, grant the two sides there, the best um, the, and say, look, these things can be regulated, right? They are safe. You know, they're not going to kill you. The other side, um, you're absolutely right. This is feeding into a system that has enormously destructive environmental and social, um, you know, consequences. So if you think about it, the research in agriculture, which is what GMOs are about, is concentrated in like five or six crops, you know, wheat, rice, mm-hmm. corn, the, the biggies. There are hundreds of other crops that are just completely ignored. And a lot of them are way more beneficial um, in a climate point of view. I think particularly of tree crops, mm. which, um, you know, arboriculture it's called, and is a big deal in the global south in places like um, West Africa and in the, the Amazon, where there's literally hundreds of tree crops. They're completely wild, essentially. Um, and they are very, very difficult to develop by conventional breeding because they have such long generation times. You yeah. Know, you have to, breed them and then wait 10 years and then breed them. And that's, that's why like the American chestnut 
um, foundation is moving so slowly to bring back uh, the American chestnut. What if you use that technology to develop tree crops, which use much less water, much less fertilization, provide shelter, you know, provide all kinds of other um, benefits and took places that are dry out. And you had this kind of arboriculture or silviculture. And um, you could also mix it, as is in the case in northern Mexico or much of West Africa, with cattle. And there's a good reason to, to, to do that and use this technology to bring in more climate appropriate agriculture. Yeah. This is another solution that everybody hates, but I, 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 I have a kind of uh, think that it might work. <laughs> but remember, I'm just the guy at the coffee shop here. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I'm not holding you to this piece. Okay. Arboriculture expert Charles C. Mann says that we should start small nuclear <laughs> yeah, reactors yeah. all over Africa. No, I, I, I understand the point that you're making. And, you know, to me, it comes down to what. What solutions are actually going to be effective and which ones are wishful thinking? And it's it's often harder than you think to tell which is which, <laughs> right? Cutting back, saying everybody should cut back on everything mm-hmm. and that we should, um, yeah. you know, sm- make our footprint smaller is itself a form of wishful thinking because you can do that sometimes individually. And, you know, you can use less plastic bags and you can turn down your thermostat and you can think I've done my bit when actually the solutions that are needed are in a more top down way. Um, and uh, similarly, you can say, oh, well, hey, you know, uh, let's let's move to a bridge fuel. But the bridge fuel is natural gas, <laughs> you know, um, and right. you, you've actually not solved the problem either. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. I, I do wish that there is um, more imagination. You know, people talk about how we need more innovation and so forth, which, which is absolutely dead true. But I also think we need more imagination yeah. and uh, more willingness to do this. And the reason that I, I think this isn't crazy to ask for is that fundamentally, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we don't really know what's going to happen 30 or 40 years from now from climate. We don't really know what the consequences of 2.5 degrees or 3 degrees or 2 degrees are. I mean, you know, we can project, but we don't actually know. We similarly don't know how fast battery prices can go down or how how cheaply we can make nukes or any of these things. It's a giant leap in the dark. And uh, yeah. that's the, one of the things that I find consistently most uh, personally annoying about environmental disputes is that people are very, very confident <laughs> you know, about things that I don't think that there's any reason to be confident about at all. Mm. And uh, there's a terrific book called Climate Shock by the um, Weissman and um, Gernot Wagner, like the late uh, professor Harvard and Gernot Wagner. Um, and its whole point is that the big scary thing about climate change is that there's this possibility of really weird stuff happening yeah. that is unpredictable and we don't know because it's such a complicated system. And, yeah. you know, to me, it translates out as, gee, I'm so glad we randomly fooled around with the constituents of the atmosphere because, you know, finish that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, there is no way to finish that sentence, you know, and. We really, there's a, you know, a non-zero chance that something really weird could happen. Um, and we, I just, just see no reason to experience that risk. Um, yeah. and, uh, but avoiding it also involves a leap into the un- un- unknown, which is, uh, means among other things that there's never going to be things for, uh, in the foreseeable future for journalists like me to write about. <laughs> <laughs> but it also means we're on this kind of scary ride. No, I mean, you're ab- you're absolutely right that, you know, the climate is such a massive system and pushing it 
in the direction that we're pushing it is going to have effects that we can't predict. I mean, the, you know, just reading about the polar vortex that, you know, overtook most of the country a few weeks ago as we're recording this. Like, that's not something that I think a lot of people would have predicted a few decades ago, that the jet stream would be disrupted such that this huge mass of polar air envelops all the way down to, you know, South Texas is uh that's weird right. and surprising and there's going to be other weird surprising results some some invasive species is going to be let loose in an area that we didn't predict because it's range changed because xyz and that's going to have a massive effect and uh yeah the 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 amount of uncertainty that we're going to be living with is maybe the only certain thing <laughs> right and you know, and it could also work out positively. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is that there's this sort of sub-literature in this idea of the effects of what they call black carbon, which is soot, um, from largely from coal um, burning, and particularly in Asia, where most of it's most of this sort of dirty brown coal, as they call it, call it, is burned, and it gets onto the Himalayas, and it you know goes up high in the air, and it goes on, and it lands on the snow of the Arctic and Antarctic and so forth, and it darkens the color of it. it you know, in the scientific language, it changes the albedo. It mm-hmm. changes the amount of light it reflects. And when dark things get hotter, and it adds to tremendously to the melting of uh, the ice caps. But the effect is incredibly short-lived. So if you really ended coal quickly, which I think is actually going likely to happen, you have this giant positive effect that suddenly happens and it happens within months yeah. of the next snowfall covers up the snow and then you don't have the, and you're actually changing the color of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and this of course should give you pause, but it might be good. <laughs> and it's this kind of thing, as far as I know that the research on the black carbon and the research on the different colors of vegetation and how they affect um, there's like, there's a whole branch of new research on how, um, warm air coming in from the Atlantic is affected by the color of the vegetation in, um, the Middle West. And, you know, there's these mind bogglingly complicated things that are all intertwining in a way that, um, it's not yet, uh, we're not yet able to put together with confidence. Yeah. And so, you know, but if you don't know what the outcome is, it could be positive. This is an incredibly fascinating conversation, and I wish I could talk to you forever, Charles. Uh, but I gotta, I gotta bring it into a in for a landing <laughs> somehow. Um, <laughs> in terms of looking at looking at all of your work, looking at uh, you know your really deep research into a knowledge of you know, native cultures and societies and the history of them heading, you know, going back uh, millennia in North America and then your research into climate change and into how we are affecting the planet. That's a, that's a very deep understanding that I feel you have headed in, headed in two directions, right. (laughs) Of, of a world, uh, you know, a world of the past and a world of the future. Um, And I wonder if you find yourself coming to any conclusions about them that others don't have because you're, you're, you know, you have that perspective. Um, or is there any, any, uh, surprising moments at which you find those two strains in your work coming together and colliding? Well, in a way, um, yes. Uh, I mean, one of the things that's really striking to me is that 
in the past 20 or 30 years, we've learned a lot about the past climate of the West mm. and uh, how it's subject to these enormous swings, these mega droughts, as they uh, call them. And uh, just last uh, year, um, in the spring, two really quite um, good scientific teams concluded from separate areas of evidence that the West is entering one right now. Wow. Um, now, in the past, they had other causes. Now it's climate change taking a sort of a norm, a, a sort of a big, a, a normally big dip, if that makes any sense, and making it deeper. Um, and the West, you know, they feel is going to be much more like something that we haven't seen for hundreds of years. And here I am reading this, you know, it's on the front page of the New York Times. Yeah. And I'm reading about what life was like in the West, you know, uh, hmm. in 1200. Yeah. And uh, how people, you know, built these really thriving civilizations and what the principles were for them to do th to do this. And I'm thinking like, whoa, <laughs> you know, these interests of mine are, are colliding yeah. just a little bit here. Um, yeah. Which is, a, you know, uh, you know, hooray, the West is getting way drier. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying that, but it's, it's, no. it's, it's like for me personally, this is uh, really, really fascinating. And of course, I have kids. I have a vested interest in the outcome. I mean, there's also, I mean, so much of your work is about how uh, Native people who, you know, again, our white European conception is, oh, lived in partnership with the land and, you know, didn't touch anything. That these these folks were causing wide scale changes to the environment in their own way, in the same, not to a smaller degree than we are, um, and certainly a difference of kind and of degree. Uh, but. That this is something humans do, that humans change the environment that we that we live in. Is that a comforting thought or is that a depressing thought to you? <laughs> oh, I, I guess it's a it's a overall it's a comforting mm -hmm. thought um, in the sense that people make stuff yeah. and people change stuff. And that's what that's what that's what we do. And we've always done it. Um, and maybe there was some perfect Edenic world, but it's been gone for for 10,000 yeah. years, you know, Um and one of the things that strikes me, you know, you always are reading about this and you're thinking like, what was in their minds? Or at least I am trying yeah. to think about it. And it seemed to me that, I mean, this is a gross generalization because we're dealing with hundreds of different cultures, you know, and crazy different languages and belief systems and, and so forth. But over and over again, I think like, I think what these people were doing was making future environments. They were trying to build a world that they wanted to live mm -hmm. in. And, uh, you know, and that's why there'd be these investments by the Hohokam for generations in these massive, um, schemes to channel water, um, and harvest water and why there is these, uh, you know, things where they're burning and maintaining the landscape and actually incorporating the burning into their, you know, r religious symbols so that it became, you know, a sacred duty to create this, um, and maintain this landscape. And I think like, you know, that's not a bad way to think. What would, what world do we want to, yeah. What should the environment we live in look like? Let's build it. Yes. Yeah, that comes to my something I think about a lot is that and I've talked about it on the show before is that you know we we do to some extent need to embrace the fact that we fundamentally change the world that we live in and that's something that humans do because only by embracing that can we accept that we have a choice in the future world that we're creating uh and that we can create one that preserves as many of the things as we want to preserve as we can, maybe not every single one, but, you know, as many species as we're able to, while also results in, you know, uh, less death and more 
uh, healthy, happy, flourishing lives for people. Hopefully. And you, and you also thinking that way, sometimes I think that you can solve multiple problems at once. Mm. Um, there's a thing in architecture called alignment, which is when, you know, you build something and it does two or three things for you. Yeah. And, um, so, for example, here I'm calling, speaking to you from New England, and um, our forests are having some problems. Um, they're mostly logged, you know, in the um, 19th century, and they're planted with fence posts, basically, and and uh, and trees, you know, very straight trees that are used for railroad rails. And those trees are short-lived, and they're all dying. I mean, mm. they, they should. They're not. They don't live that long. And so we're going to have pretty soon a whole lot of dead trees in our mm. landscape. Um, and so we're going to start having the kind of fires you guys are having because, yeah. you know, there's so much fuel, uh, there. Um, and the problem is nobody has any money to invest in, you know, this. So how can we generate this? We also have another problem. The most common tree in the entire East Coast forest was the American chestnut, which is yeah. wiped out by chestnut blight in, uh, beginning in 1904. They have now developed chestnuts, you know, that, that could go back in. And the chestnuts are a fantastically productive tree. About, I don't know, something like 40% of our agriculture doesn't go, you know, by weight, doesn't go to feeding people. It's used for chemicals and dyes and, you know, cattle feed. Chestnuts are just great for this. So you could actually bring in something that would replace the dead trees, um, create a beautiful landscape. Chestnuts are, are, are beautiful and be a productive industry that could take some of the weight off of the um, industry that's um, – you know, from that's threatened by the randomness of climate change. So that kind of thing. And we could say we could build a landscape with lots of chestnuts in it. It used to be something like a quarter of the trees east of the Mississippi were chestnuts. Um, you know, you could build a, yeah. put a lot of chestnuts in and have a big and have a big impact in a beautiful environment and solve a bunch of environmental problems at the same time. At least, you know, again, now talking as the guy sitting next to you in the coffee <laughs> right. shop that you can't escape from. <laughs> well, okay. Last question for you as, as that guy, what, what animates you in the research projects that you uh, pursue? I mean, as you said, you're a freelance writer, you can work on anything that you want. You've probably, you've sold enough books that I think you can probably choose your topics. Uh, what is there? Is there something in the work that, uh, draws you to certain topics or themes or or pursuits. What, what are you are you looking for something when you're? Yeah, I can tell it's a it's like a feeling. You know, mm -hmm. Nabokov called it that shiver up the nape of your spine, you know, or something like that. Mm. And for me, it's uh, I grew up with my dad. You know, I, 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 you know, he's a wonderful guy. Uh, passed away uh, a while ago, and uh, he would come home from work. He ran a small business and he's a smart guy and he would have a pile of newspapers and books and magazines and he would go through them. Right. And uh, if he felt like he was being talked down to or, or pedantic or there, you know, or whatever, didn't have a sense of humor. He had this basket <laughs> in the corner of the room and he'd throw the stuff <laughs> in the basket, you know, no, no, no. But his highest praise was my mother would be, you know, cooking and uh, so forth is he would go, huh. And he'd run over and he'd say, Nina, I didn't know that. <laughs> And he would tell her what he had just read. And this is like a tremendous pleasure yeah. for him. And I always think like, you know, am I, am I, am I, you know, when I'm writing, I'm looking for subject that would make my dad go, I didn't know that. And I, and when I'm writing, I'm also trying to think, am I in that basket? I don't want to go in the basket. <laughs> I love that so much. You're not in my basket. And your book made me exclaim in that way many times, or your books have. Yeah. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's, it's been such a, a pleasure and an honor to have you, Charles. 
Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And I um, look forward to listening to you in the future, even when I'm not on. Amazing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you once again to Charles Seaman for coming on the show. If you want to pick up his books, you can check them out at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. And if you purchase the book there, you'll be supporting not just this show, but your local bookstore as well. I want to thank our producers, Chelsea Jacobson and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, Andrew WK, for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I record this very episode on. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media. And uh, until next time, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you here on the show for taking a listen. And we'll see you next week on Factually. Factually.